You're going to want to turn to Jude. It's easy to find because it's right before Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And this marks a big milestone for Calvary Chapel South Pittsburgh uh, because this will complete, really, I guess, when we're done Wednesday night. Wednesday night we're doing the book of Revelation. We're 10 chapters in the book of Revelation, almost done with that. But when we're done with this book, Jude and Revelation, that will say we've completed the entire New Testament here at Calvary Chapel, South Pittsburgh. Of course, we're still, still he- heading through the Old Testament. And you're going to see how important knowing the Old Testament is today. Here we have a little letter. What's fascinating about this letter is the the realism, the reality of this letter. He actually writes here, Jude does, he writes that he was going to write about something else, a common salvation, but that the Holy Spirit changed his heart and he went and uh, wrote a letter that deals with false prophets or false teaching. So the Holy Spirit had a great impact on him uh, as he is writing this letter, false prophets. For the last couple months, we've been studying about that. What's the number one thing a false prophet does? They deny who Jesus is as revealed in the Bible. Not who they think uh, Jesus is. There might be false prophets out there who claim the name of Jesus left and right, but they don't claim the name of Jesus as revealed in the Bible, fully God and fully man. And that's the number one thing that false prophets do. And then you're going to see, as we have in a few of the other letters, the characteristics of a false prophet so that you and I and we can recognize when they're out there. By the way, they aren't out there, the Bible says. False prophets come in here, in any church, the Bible says. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that fascinating when Jesus talks about the wheat uh, and the tares parable? You almost scratch your head. You're like, wheat and tares. Okay, wheat, the good stuff, the stuff that's productive. The weeds that grow up right next to it that look like the wheat but isn't the wheat. And people uh, that are followers of Christ come in and say, Lord, we should just wipe out the weeds. He says, no, 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 no. You leave it to me till the end, and I'll take care of it. Right? And so we are going to examine today the book of Jude 25 verses, folks, 25 verses, one chapter, a, uh, over, a little over 600 words, a little over 600 words, and listen to this, eight specific and relevant references or stories or quotes or illustrations from the Old Testament. Think about that. Eight of them in 25 verses. And so it's uh, imperative uh, that we uh, know uh, what it is that these Old Testament stories are telling us. Now, who is this Jude? Jude is the brother of James. Jude and James had a mother and father. Uh, Their names were Mary and Joseph, (laughs) which makes these two the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Why do I say half-brother? Because Jesus had a mother, Mary, 
But Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, you know. So I say, uh, half-brother, what's interesting uh, is that both of these brothers and sisters, the Bible says, didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah until when? Until after he was resurrected. Until after he was resurrected. You see, that's fascinating. You need, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. Yes, you need the death of Jesus Christ, but also the resurrection of Jesus Christ in your life. And you, uh, you and I and we, we believe that as the gospel. He died for our sins, but he also rose again and defeated death. And that's what impacts people. And we see it here uh, in John chapter 7 when it tells us that his brothers and sisters, they didn't believe in him until after the resurrection. We also see these two, James and Jude, in the upper room in Acts 1 uh, with the disciples when they're waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, don't be confused. In the Gospels, there's a John who wrote a gospel. Everybody know that? Raise your hand if you know that. Okay, he had a brother named James, right? That's not this James and this Jude. Jude and James are someone different. And James, you go to Acts 15, you find out lots about Jude's brother James. James was the leader of the early church in Israel, or excuse me, in Jerusalem. Okay, that's important. Remember when they were discussing in Acts 15, do you have to adhere to the law to be a Christian? And specifically, do you have to be circumcised as males in order to be a Christian? Guess who they looked to to resolve the dispute? James. So James, the brother of Jude, Jude and James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, and that's whose words we're going to study today, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Notice this. Here's what I would write. I said this when we went through James. Here's what I would write first. Jude, I'm the brother of Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's what I'd say. In other words, listen to me. I know what I'm talking about. I grew up with this guy. He didn't write that. Look what he writes, and then we'll bow our heads and pray. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, he identifies himself. Can you imagine your brother or sister? Do you ever get in fights with your brother or sister? Oh, okay. Well, I did. And he's a bondservant of Jesus Christ. That's who he identifies himself, or that's how he identifies himself, and a brother of James. To those who are called, if you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, you have been called, picked, brought forth. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, you are called, you're sanctified, set apart by God the Father and preserved. What a word in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this morning and for these words from the brother of Jesus Christ, Jude, by the Holy Spirit, Lord. Help us to understand what you'd want us to understand here so that we would go out this week walking with you talking with you, and then, Lord, sharing the love and light of Christ with those who don't know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I've said it, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, Jude is. He's a willing slave of the one who died and rose again.
That's what he's saying. I've committed everything, my whole life. I'll lay down all my goals, aspirations, all the things for the glory of God through Jesus Christ. I'm willingly following Jesus Christ, my brother. He didn't say his brother, but that's who it is. And my brother James, that's the one who I am. That's this Jude. To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and reserved in Jesus Christ, he's not giving an evangelistic letter. He's writing to the church. Get it? He's writing to the body of Christ. You've been called. You've been sanctified by God the Father. That means set apart. You're set apart. You are different than the world. We are different than the world. Not in some spiritually superior way, in a humble way of being set apart. What are you set apart for? For holiness. To glorify the Lord. That's the message of the Bible. Be holy, for I am holy. You are called to be like your Father. You're called. Those are called. You're sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. You know what that word means? I, don't, I bet you'd never thought about this. It's not like preservative jelly or something, right? You're not canned and put up on the shelf. No, it's different. Wherever you go, whatever you're doing, whatever God has called you in, whatever occupation you're at, whatever you're doing with your life, uh, whether you're doing the hardest occupation, staying home with the kids, the Bible tells us that you're carefully watched and guarded. That's what preserved means. You're, you're carefully watched and guarded. Isn't that beautiful? Sometimes do you think, well, the Lord isn't paying attention. He, he doesn't uh, hear my prayers or, or whatever you're saying. You feel far off from God. Remember that you're a preserved one. You're carefully watched and guarded. That's what he's saying. And he says, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This is kind of a common phrase. Paul does something like this in his greetings, in the, his letters. Here, though, he adds one, and he says, I want you to have mercy, peace, and love. And I, I don't want you just to, I don't pray that you just have mercy, peace, and love. I pray that it's just exploding out of your life. That's what Jude is saying. I, I want mercy, peace, and love to be exploding out of your life. Mercy, with having God withhold from you what you deserve. Who needs explosion of mercy every morning? Yes, you need an explosion. I need an explosion of mercy that God would withhold from me what I deserve. And what I deserve is death and hell. And yet the Lord has given me new life by his Son, by the Spirit, to live with him forever. And so we can then come and have peace. We talk about this several times. We now have peace with God. We're no longer at war with God. There's no longer enmity with God for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have not surrendered your life to Christ, guess what the Bible says? You're at enmity with God. There's a space between you and God. There's war going on between you and God. But as soon as you surrender your life to Christ, peace! The wall has been broken. You have peace with God. No more do you have to fear in that, the wrong sense, you know, the bad sense. You fear him out of respect and reverence, but now there's peace with God. And the Bible says in Philippians, you also can have the peace of God. Who needs peace in this world? Come on, folks. We need the peace of God and love, real love. Not wishy-washy love that you think, 
love, I'll tolerate everything. Yes, we love everybody. Everybody deserves dignity and respect by the fact that they were born in the image and likeness of God. Even the folks you disagree with, we all love. We, but the Bible tells us that the love of God has now for those who are in Christ Jesus, been shed abroad in our hearts. And the image is like a hose just being poured into your heart. God's love can be poured into your heart. And, and Jude speaks of this, that this would just explode out of your life, that you would speak love and truth, that I would speak truthfully to you, yes, but I would do it lovingly. And I would speak lovingly to you, yes, with truth. When you see what real love is, uh, the Bible tells us in the Psalms that those who love the Lord hate evil, that we begin to hate evil. And you say, well, yeah, you know, I hate demonic stuff, dark stuff. But see, often the, the, the devil, evil, comes in a pretty package, like, you know, sitcoms. Watch some sitcoms sometimes, man. It's some evil stuff. I, I tell this story. One time Jan was away. I'm preparing a sermon it's about 8 o'clock at night, and I, I thought uh, a basketball was going to be, a game was going to be on it. So I turn on TNT, you know what I'm talking about, the cable channel. And I'm sitting there, and I'm reading the Bible, preparing for the sermon, kind of not paying attention. And I, I know that no basketball games come on. And then I start listening to 8 o'clock at night now, folks, 8 o'clock at night. I start listening to this movie that's on TNT, and I look, and it's just kind of some silly, you know, romantic comedy, I guess. And I'm going to tell you something. It was pornographic in what they were saying. I mean, pornographic. And I'm sitting to myself. I'm here. You know, my wife's away. I'm sitting here trying to do a sermon. Eight o'clock at night, not 1230 at night or 1 a.m., on a regular channel, and what's blaring through the TV is pure evil. And now I've come to the fork in the road, right? To like it and uh, go towards it or to flee evil. And folks, we, we, in order to love the Lord, hate evil. That's what the Bible says we'll do because he hates e evil. How do we love? How do we interact with the Lord? Listen, God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. So he shows us our love by what Christ did on the cross. But listen, the Bible says all throughout the book of John, we show our love back to the Lord. You want to know how to love the Lord? You want to know how to love on the Lord? You know how to do it? The Bible just says it. Just go read John 14, John 15, John 16, John 17. Just go read it. Obey what he says. <laughs> Obey. <laughs> Not some wishy-washy stuff. He says, no, you... Do what I've asked you to do, like stuff like this. Forgive people. Don't hold grudges. Those sorts of things. I'm just bringing one up, right? Just obey. And so there's this thing. How, do, how is love multiplied into my life? Well, I start to hate evil. I start to uh, uh, do what God asks me to do. See, a lot of people just want the love of the Lord showered upon them, and that just kind of be it. There's no response of love. The Bible makes it clear in Romans 12, 1 and 2 that our only reasonable response is just to give our whole life back to the Lord. Just everything back to the Lord. That means obedience, folks. Americans chafe at that word. They don't like to be told what to do. Well, here, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. He goes, I had it. 
I knew what I was going to write. The topic came. I was going to write it just about our common salvation. Not common in quality, but the thing that we have in common, and that's the gospel that was delivered once for all. Listen, folks, to the, same, or to the apostles. You can read it in Ephesians also. Why am I telling you all that? Because he says, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. There's one gospel. It's been delivered through the apostles, set forth here in Scripture by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when people come along that say they have this new thing, this new revelation from the Lord, this greater insight, be very careful. Yes, we preach what the, what the Holy Spirit told to the apostles, the common faith. And we do learn things that we hadn't learned before. But when people start to tamper with that, and I, I tell you what, folks, I see it all the time out there on the Internet. Or I have people come to me, they start to get involved. I had somebody from another church call me about two months ago where somebody in their family was getting involved in a movement that was false teaching. And that false teaching was claimed that they had a new and secretive kind of, not secretive, but a new insight that only they contained and the other churches didn't have it. And it's going on today. He says, I want to contend earnestly for the faith. How do you contend for the faith? Get in fights with people, point out everything that everybody's doing wrong? Well, I guess there's a point in uh, time in which you need to point out to the false prophets or the false teachers that what they're teaching is inappropriate. But you know how you contend for the faith? Here's how you contend for the faith. Uh, I'm giving away uh, the sermon, but in verse 20, you build yourself up in the most holy faith. You learn the word so intimately. How do you build yourself up in the faith? Well, faith comes by hearing, Romans tells us. And hearing what? Hearing some great pithy statements on social media. Talking to my friend about what uh, human nature is like. Uh, talking to my friends about uh, where I should be on Sundays. And, and maybe I should just be out in the, uh, you know, nature, just communing with nature. I can commute. Well, No. You, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. How do you contend for the faith? You build yourself up in the word. How do you contend for the faith? You go and share the gospel with people who need to hear the gospel and you present it clearly as it was presented to the apostles and as laid down in the scriptures. That means it requires you to know the scriptures. I need to know the scriptures. You learn the character of God through the scriptures. You, you go and serve and you love people in the name of Jesus. That's contending for the faith, folks. Oh, I thought that was good. And the reason I thought that was good is not because I'm so great, but here's what everybody thinks it is. It's always, I got to make everything right about every spiritual doctrine. Well, yes, you do need to know the doctrine. Yes. But if you don't know love in the doctrine... Forget it. If you don't give love in the doctrine, forget it. If you're not out there serving and loving and praying and contending in those ways, forget it. I found it necessary, Jude wrote, to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly, that means vigorously, for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. It was 
uh, uh, delivered through the apostles. Uh, Ephesians tells us that. For certain men have crept in. Notice this. False prophets, false teaching isn't always out there being blared in. It's right in here. <laughs> People come in here with agendas. Agendas. Right amongst us. People crept in. That means they're unnoticed. They come in. They might even serve on committees. They might even try to uh, get engaged in Sunday school, things like that. But these men, these people, they creep in. They're unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Does that mean from the beginning of time they were condemned? No. When they chose to go down the path, God had ordained that anybody who would do such a thing would be condemned. Do you understand what I mean? In other words, they're responsible for their own sins. Some people take this and say, look, they were destined for hell. Nope. They made their own choice. But God's choice to condemn false prophecy was uh, 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 made or uh, established all this time ago, was marked out for them. Well, they, what, what uh, marks somebody who's teaching false doctrine? They can look good, they can sound good, they can be very religious, they can serve on committees, but they're ungodly men. Timothy says there's, they have a form of godliness, but they have no power. There's nothing real. It's just, it's just phony and fake. That's one thing. There's ungodly men. Look at this. Here's what they always do. I'm going to get in trouble here. Because I look out on TV and I see this happening almost every day. All day long on TV, right here, it's blaring into people's living rooms. It's blaring from the radios. This is blaring. And you listen to it and you go, wow, I can't believe this is coming through. This is not the gospel. What is it? Ungodly men, they have a form of godliness. They dress well. They look good. They look the part. But they turn the grace of our God into what? Lewdness. Now, lewdness has the hint in there of sexual immorality, yes, but not, uh, uh, not just sexual immorality. This word can also be licentiousness. In other words, you feel like you have a license to rip off people by using the, the cloak of the grace of God. You get it? And, and licentiousness can be sexual, but it also can be a brazen, listen to what I'm saying, a brazen teaching of principles of theology that people know aren't right for their own gain and own uh, 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 profit. You, you see what I'm saying? They just go right out there. They just go right out there. They're right in your face. They turn the grace of God into licentiousness. They teach anti-biblical things, and they know it, and they don't care. We were discussing this in my house. <laughs> this was touching, man. My little guy. He goes, you mean those people know what they're doing and they're still saying it? Yes, they do. See, the grace of God is no wimpy thing. Just read Titus. It's one that makes you sober. It's one that makes you conform. It one's, 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 uh, 
It's one that transforms you into godliness, which sometimes hurts when God has to chip and chisel away the rough edges that you and I have. It's never wimpy. It moves you down the path of Christ-likeness. That's what the grace of God does. But see, what people are teaching is, oh, grace of God, if you do something and it's bad, oh, God will forgive you, so just go ahead and do it anyway. That's one side of it. Another side of it is, I'm going to teach you some stuff, like if you need a Lexus, just pray for it. Send in your seed here, and about you'll get everything back a millionfold or tenfold or whatever. Well, what if God's not called me to send my seed to you? I think to myself. They are ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness, and then they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about that for several weeks, how important it is to know who Jesus is as revealed in the Scripture. That's the key. Not as somebody tells you, not as you think in your mind. It's Jesus. And Jesus, notice here, is God. And that's very important. Then he says this, but I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord having saved the people... uh, Uh, The Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who didn't believe. He's now going to give you three examples, folks. This one's from Numbers 14. Where's our new Numbers teacher in the Bible college? Oh, he's downstairs. Well, he better know this. Look, Jude, by the power of the Holy Spirit, wants to remind them through three examples why false prophets are going to be condemned. First of all, the people of Israel themselves, they were delivered people. God had given them the out, put the blood on the doorpost. 400 years of slavery and bondage move into, uh, uh, moving towards the promised land. Go out there. And they did do that, but in Numbers 14, remember, they started to doubt and disbelieve and murmur and grumble. And then the Lord says, well, why don't you send 12 spies over there? So 12 spies go into the promised land. And it's a beautiful land flowing with milk and honey and massive grapes. And it's, it's great. And the, the, the spies come back and 10 of them say, no way, man. We ain't going in there. And he had a whole con- they had a whole contingent of people who agreed with them. We're not going in there. They're big people in there. They'll murder us. They'll wipe us out, despite the fact that the Lord had promised it. Two of the spies said, no way. We're going for it. We have the Lord with us, right? You know what happened to those people? They weren't allowed to enter into the promised land. Everybody 20 years, over 20 years died before uh, the, the, the Israelites could then go into the promised land. What a shame, Why? Because they didn't believe. And here's the point. God took care of the judgment. Look at this. On delivered people. Now hold on. Look at the second thing. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, verse 6, but left their own abode, he has reserved uh, in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now every commentator is going to say everybody has a different opinion about what this is saying. And I'll give you some of the different opinions, but everybody's in agreement about what the conclusion is. Here's what I mean. 
Well, some people believe this is just talking about how Satan was uh, uh, created and then he was established as an anointed worshiping cherub or angel, right? And uh, he was perfect until this iniquity was found in him, Ezekiel 28, 12 through 15, in which he said, I want to be like God, which is a lot of our problems, isn't it? And then Isaiah tells us that Satan fell as he was caught up with pride and cast down from heaven. You can look that up in Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. And then we've been seeing, or at least we've referred to it in Revelation 12, 4, that John talks about these angels who sided with Satan and fell with him out of heaven, apparently a third of all the angels. And they didn't stay in heaven serving the Lord, but uh, they were cast out. And many people that uh, believe that what verse 6 is talking about is simply where these angels are and what's going to happen to them. They're going to be judged. Some people, on the other hand, uh, other hand uh, believe this is talking specifically about uh, these uh, controversial passages that are found in Genesis 6. You need to know this. Verses 1 and 2. Uh, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, beautiful, took the wives for themselves, and there's this debate within the church whether the sons of God there are angelic beings or just another way of saying followers of God. And some people believe that Jude here is telling us that, no, those people in Genesis 6 were actually angels who took some sort of form and had a sexual, sexual union with ladies, women on the church, and that uh, 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 this was an unnatural uh, sexual union, of course, okay? And that... There is reserved an abode with everlasting chains, a judgment place for those angelic beings, right? Well, whatever it is and whatever you uh, believe as a good Berean who studies the scriptures, here's the point. The point is God's going to take care of even the angels who fell. He says it. So number one, look at this. People who were delivered but didn't believe he'll take care of. People who were, well, it wasn't people, created beings, uh, angels who were, listen, what were they? They were worshipers who fell. God has a special place of judgment for them, whether you believe that's just the fall uh, of the angels or if it also incorporates Genesis 6. I'm trying to give you the different views, but here's another one. Also... He, uh, uh, after he has reserved an everlasting chains under darkness under the judgment of the great day as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar, similar manner to those. Now, why is he using that one? Well, remember when Lot and Abraham came to the fork in the road? Abraham said, hey man, I know our people are fighting back and forth over here. I'm your uncle, you're my nephew. Let's, let's have peace. So here, Lot, Here's what I want you to do. I want you to look around, and whatever you want, you go there, okay? And Lot looked around, and what did he see? He saw Sodom and Gomorrah, and he knew, you know, uh, on the surface, that was the place to go because it was the fertile place. It was the place that would grow his crops and his kingdom, and he chose it over his, his, um, his uncle, uh, where his, his uncle was to go. And Sodom and Gomorrah, you know the story, right? You, you know this uh, from, uh, uh, from Genesis. Sodom and Gomorrah, 
became a place of great wickedness and sexual perversion. And you know this, that uh, Lot and his family had to flee and that he, they were told not by, by the angels not to look back and his wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt, right? And so you have delivered people that God judged in the Old Testament. You have worshiping angels that God judged or is judging in, from the Old Testament. And then you have people who were significantly blessed and prosperous that turned from God to wicked ways and they were judged. And what the implication is here, by the way, you can read in Ezekiel 16 uh, uh, how prosperous, how beautiful Sodom and Gomorrah was and what they devolved into, you know, all the sins that they devolved into. You can read it there. But what the point is here is that uh, uh, they're going to be suffering vengeance of eternal fire. It says that there in verse 7. They were given over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. That's where some people think it's Genesis 6, gone after strange flesh. Angels went after flesh that wasn't compatible with them. See, that's where they get that, Genesis 6. Some people believe this is just a reference to sexual perversion. But they're going to suffer the vengeance of a eternal fire. So he says, likewise. In other words, God's going to take care of the false prophets. As sure as there's this podium right here, or those seats right there, or I'm standing here, God will take care of the false prophets. They're dreamers. Now you start to see the characteristics of a false prophet. They're dreamers. Some people believe this means they're not in touch with reality. Other people believe this is a reference to that they're seeing prophetic things and not telling the truth about them. Oh, I spoke to the Lord this morning and he told me to ask all of you to send in a hundred bucks. This is a serious problem, folks. Likewise, all these dreamers. Now, is there, hey, is there legitimate uh, requests for money? Of course. The Lord says that laborers are worthy of their wage. Of course, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this false stuff that go on. They're dreamers who defile the flesh. They defile the flesh. They, 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 they harm themselves because they're so carnal. They, they live according to the flesh, the stuff that feels good and looks good. They want it. They don't uh, as much care about the things of the Lord, but they want the stuff and then, look at this. I want you to see this, folks. This is a problem in American church. False prophets reject authority. I'll just let that sit here for a minute. American Christians don't like authority. That's why there's church hoppers. What are the leaders of the church? The leaders of the church are under shepherds. They're under the Lord Jesus Christ. They're serving and loving the flock and feeding the flock and, and, and caring for the flock. But the Bible does say that to honor the leadership. Now, I'm not getting you, who, who should you honor first? Jesus Christ, of course. That's what I'm saying. Don't take this in a weird way. And yet, there is this sense in which leaders should be respected in your local church. We're under the authority of Jesus Christ. The congregants are under the authority of Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ establishes some leadership in the church. You get it? And we got a lot of people that just thumb their nose at the leadership in, in, in the United States. 
And if somebody comes and, you know, confronts them, Americans hate that word, or criticizes them, which shouldn't be a bad word, it should be a good word. Criticism is good. It means you can grow. But if you do that, what do people do? They leave. They don't stick in there. They don't hang in there with the beauty of working things out and loving one another in hard places, in easy places, in soft places, in medium places. No, they just leave because they refuse to be under the authority of anyone or anything. That's what false teachers are like. And they speak evil of dignitaries. Oh, my goodness. I know you're going to come talk to me about this, but I don't care. You better be careful what you say about God-appointed politicians. Just be careful. You're welcome to have your opinion. Of course you are. You're welcome to vote against people. Of course you are. You're welcome to participate in the political game. Yes, do it. Be a great citizen. Read, uh, grow, vote, uh, uh, you, you know, uh, prop up your candidate, try to get other to Yes, of course, but be careful how you talk about people. Remember, they're people. I don't care if it's a politician or the leadership of the church, or uh, somebody uh, in the church, you know, in America who's famous, be careful how you talk about people. Here he says that false prophets speak evil of dignitaries, and I got to tell you, the political discourse is evil. Not all, but lots. Here's another thing. Look in verse 9, yet Michael the archangel, he's spoken of, I think, four times in the Bible, always when it's uh, discussed, uh, uh, there's a preparation for some sort of struggle or war or battle. And here, here's a big struggle that we didn't even know about until now. Last we heard, uh, Moses was being buried back in Deuteronomy, yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, (laughs) apparently there was this big struggle in the heavenlies about where Moses was going to be and buried. Isn't that odd? Why do you think that would happen? Well, a couple of reasons. Maybe some people believe that maybe the Israelites uh, would have made Moses an idol of theirs. And so the devil wanted to display his body somewhere prominently so they could get the eyes of the Israelites off God and onto Moses. Isn't that interesting? That's one possibility. Other possibilities, you know, Michael the Archangel contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of uh, Moses, daring not to bring against him a reviling accusation. And there's, there's lots of theories. You know, obviously, if that was the case, then, then the Lord wanted to bury him somewhere nondescript so he'd keep, his eyes off, keep their eyes off him and onto him. But also... There's another theory. Do you remember Moses appeared at the transfiguration? And so maybe God had plans for that body, and there was this struggle. Isn't that interesting? There was this struggle. But none of that's the point. (laughs) It gives us some insight into what was happening back then, but that's not the point. The point here is, what is one characteristic of a false prophet? You know what they do? They always rail against the devil. Come on, folks, watch some TV. American church, you got people strutting up and down how they're going to attack the devil and, 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 and do things to the devil and blah, 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 blah. And here, the most 
powerful angel, the one for battle, Michael says, whoa, only thing I'm going to do is be prepared to have the Lord step in and rebuke the devil, not me. Get it? In other words, you got a lot of people who are false prophets who are preoccupied with casting out the devil, which maybe there's a place for that. But they're always preoccupied, strutting around. That's the whole thing. And it's almost as if they have this special remedy or potion or thing that they can do that casts out the devil. And the Bible here says, you be careful. Not even Michael the archangel would do that. What he would do is he would put the Lord between him and this, or this, the, these evil spirits, right? But these speak evil of whatever they don't know. <laughs> you know what that's saying right there? That's saying that they don't really know what they're talking about. <laughs> By the way, rabbit trail. This has nothing to do with the sermon, but kind of has something to do with the sermon. If you want to read a book on the strategy of spiritual warfare, do yourself a favor and get one book. Don't bother with any others, because I've read a lot of them. Now get this book, The Strategy of Satan by Warren Wearsby. Just, just do yourself a favor and get that book. It's about this long. Real easy read. You'll read it in one day, maybe. Strategy of Satan by Warren Wearsby. But anyway, these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. In other words, what they're going to preach to you, what they're going to talk about, is they're going to talk about fleshly things. It'll be couched in religion. It'll sound good, anointed, uh, Lord rebuke you, or you know, whatever. Not Lord rebuke you, but Satan get out of here. All this stuff that sounds Christian-like. But they don't even know. What they're talking about is natural stuff, brute beasts, things that appeal to your carnal nature like this. You can have whatever you want materially if you just follow this formula. We don't really teach the scriptures here except for unless they talk about prosperity. You get me? Well, here it corrupts their own selves. And he says, woe to them. Why woe to them? Here you go, Old Testament again. Woe to these people. Woe is a bad thing. <laughs> it's not a good thing. It means judgment's coming on false teaching. False teaching, woe to them. Well, because they've gone the way of Cain. What do you mean they've gone the way of Cain? Well, you know the story, right? Cain harvested the fruits and the vegetables. His brother harvested or, you know, raised the livestock. When it came time to kind of, they just started to know that it was time to start sacrificing to the Lord. Cain takes some of out of, out of his crops, sacrifices to the Lord. Abel gives a a blood sacrifice or a meat sacrifice, and the Lord's pleased with Abel's. Now, at first glance, you kind of think, well, maybe it's because he knew it was the blood sacrifice as opposed to the, you know, that the blood sacrifice was better, and so Abel had those sorts of things, and he could do it. And Cain just, uh, you know, gave uh, from the crops, and that wasn't as good because, you know, blood sacrifice, there's life in the blood. Everything in the Old Testament and the New Testament points to the blood as a sacrifice of way approaching God. And I think there is something to that. You see, the way of Cain is this, dead religion. 
The way of Cain is dead religion, dead religion, coming to the Lord, being a good little boy, good little girl, acting like he's Santa Claus. If you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you don't get bad, or you get bad. And that's how we think. Some people think it's dead religion, and people serve on committees, and they fight, and churches split over these stupid things because people are inside dead and rotting because on the outside, they look wonderful. They tie up their tie. They come to church, but there's nothing happening inside. It's the way of Cain. Yes, there is probably something to that, except for in Hebrews it says, Abel gave his by faith. Any sacrifice unto the Lord must be by faith. You understand that? That's why I always say, and probably get in trouble, we have a box back there. We don't pass the plate. But should you be giving money to your local church? Yes. You should do it consistently, prayerfully, think it through, give money. But we're not going to pass it there. It's up to you and the Lord. But here's what I say. If you're grudgingly giving, don't give. Now, I might get in trouble for that. Some people would say just keep doing it. I say don't give. Here, because it's inside that counts, not outside. It's inside that counts, not outside. Woe to them, for they've gone the way of Cain. What else does dead religion lead to, folks? Catch it. Watch what happens. Dead religion, trying to approach God without the sacrifice. It leads to bitterness, jealousy, and here it comes, anger. That's what Cain represents. Dead religion, bitterness, jealousy, anger. Woe to them. They've gone in the way of Cain. That's what happens to people. See, they don't explain the scriptures. They're in it for the carnal reasons, that to, which is to get lots of things from these people that sit out here. And when it doesn't go well, they're brow, you know, they browbeat the people, and nobody grows on the inside. Woe to them. And then what, what de- de- deteriorates into is people who are jealous of another. Like, wouldn't you be jealous of, like, my goodness, I've been to 50 Bible studies. He's been to 48 Bible studies. He got a Lexus this week. I didn't. And you could start to, you, right? And you could start seeing this thing and woe to them. They've gone the way of Cain. What else have they done? They've run greedily in the era of Balaam for profit. By the way, that's in Revelation chapter 2. Jesus refers to that in the church a church, a certain church had run that way. What does it mean? Here, time out for one second. Do you, do you see how important it is to know the Old Testament? If you want to do a great devotion, forget a devotional book. Just forget it for a second. Just go and run through these stories. Go back into the Old Testament and learn these stories and know them. Just know them cold. So when someone says, Woe to them, for they've gone the way of Cain. Know what it means. And then they've run greedily in the era of Balaam for profit. What did Balaam do? Well, interesting story. I already told it during Revelation. I'll tell it to you again. It's in Numbers 22 through 25. And also, again, you need to see Numbers 31. Here's what happened. Israelites going to the promised land. King of Moab looks out over the plain and says, My goodness, two to three million people coming down the plain. What are we going to do about this? Hey, oh, did I say Balaam? Anyway, uh, 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 Balak, Balak, king of Moab, Balak, looks over the plain, sees all these people. He says, hey, call the prophet Balaam, get him here. We're going to b- curse these people. He sends a delegation. Balaam, the prophet, prays. Lord says, don't go. Balak sends a second delegation. This time he says, I'm going to give you everything you need. You'll be set for life if you'll just come and curse the Israelites. Praise the Lord. Uh, Lord says, don't go. Balaam pleads, Lord, please let me go. Lord lets him go, gets on a donkey. He's going around a pass. 
donkey falls up against the mountain, crushes the prophet's leg. The prophet's like whipping the donkey. The donkey says, what are you doing? There's an angel out here preventing me, right? Remember this? Well, anyway, Balaam finally gets to the uh, uh, the king of Moab, Balak. Balak has him go up on a mountain, look down over the Israelites who are camped, which means they're camped in the uh, form of a cross around the tabernacle. That's a, that's a uh, sermon for another day. And he goes, he goes, okay, curse him. And Balaam goes, blessing, 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 blessing. He does it four times. And he's like, what, what, what are you doing? I hired you here to bless him. He says, listen, I can't bless him. The Lord has said I can't, or I can't curse him. The Lord has said I can't curse him. I, I, only blessing is going to come out of my mouth. And then there's something really devious that happens in Numbers 31. He said, but if we can't curse him, he doesn't say this, but this is what he's saying. If we can't curse him, let's have him curse themselves because I want the money. And what does he do? He goes to the king and his dignitaries, and he says, here's what you do. Have the girls dress really provocatively and send them around the Israelites and invite them into the tent. And that's exactly what happens. And so when this says this, listen to this, they say, woe to these false prophets. They've gone the way of king, dead religion that leads to anger, bitterness, jealousy. They've run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit. They, they sound Christian. They kind of do Christian things, but they're in it for the profit. And they perished in the rebellion of Korah. There's another one from Numbers. Whoever's the Numbers teacher better include these. I'm kidding. No, well, I'm not kidding. But Numbers 16. Numbers 16. Listen, this is so fascinating. Do you know Korah was a Levite? And Moses and his gang are leading the uh, Israelites in the, uh, in the wilderness. You know this, right? And Korah, who's a Levite, but he's not of the family of Levites that was called, listen, this is fascinating, to serve in the temple. He was one of the family of Levites that would minister around the temple, but not in the temple. And, and you know, that probably stuck in his crawl. He and two of his buddies raise up a whole bunch of people to go and talk to Moses and his people and say, you know what, you guys, you need help, and we're just the people to help you. And what he wanted to do was he wanted to overthrow Moses and his band and take over. Because why? He was seeking power and prestige within the church. Man, I'm telling you what. Here I sit. <laughs> the pastor of a very small church. And I, you know what I do every day? Thank God. Because you know how intoxicating it would be to have 2,000 people at your church or 4,000 people at your church or 8,000 people. You, you know how that would be and how rough that would be on a human? To resist that desire to be noticed and worshipped in a sense. You know what happens to me at every single pastor's conference I go to? Every single one. You sit down with the pastor next door or beside you at lunch, shake their hand. Hi, my name's Tim. Hi, I'm Bill or whatever. Uh, where do you pastor? Oh, okay, I'm a pastor in Pittsburgh. And then they say, you know, I'm the pastor. Guess, guess what the next question is? It's every single time. Here it comes. I know it's coming. 
I might, I might as well just say, okay, I'll ask the question for you. Here's what comes. How many people are in your church? Isn't that sickening? See, there's this thing with false prophets, not that the people who've asked me that question are false prophets, but there's this thing when you combine all this, you combine this inappropriate knowledge of who Jesus Christ is, you com- this, this carnality of, of, of preaching according to carnal ways, appealing to the lust of people. And what do you folks lust after? Money, things, and other things too. Then, then this leads to a, a, a group of people who are dead in their religion and bitter and and. and and, you know, get angry and jealous at each other instead of being built up in peace and love and all the things that the Lord wants to do in a, a person's heart. They, they go the way of Cain, but then they run after this heir of Balaam for profit, and they seek this place in Christendom where they're recognized and noticed like Korah. That's what he says. Oh, my gosh. Well, wait a minute now. It has something for you. He goes on, he talks a little bit more. He says, there's spots in your love feast while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. In other words, you know what they had back then? They had like potlucks. They called them love feasts. We try to do it here, but COVID's wrecked that for a while. Wednesdays and Sundays, we do that here, right? But, but it's people getting together, eating food together, talking about the Lord. Here it says there's spots. It actually means hidden rocks. It's, the, it's the, like it's the uh, picture of a guy driving a boat, a mariner, at, like the Titanic, <laughs> or something else, shallow rocks, right? You, you're driving a boat, you can't see it, and bang, you hit the rocks and you get sunk. That's what this means. Because what did they do at the love feast? They wanted to just talk about themselves. It was all for gain. Get to know me, man. I'll sit with you, but I want to talk about myself. That's what characterized the false prophets. Without fear, they only serve themselves. They're, listen, now they describe them. They're clouds without water. That's what false prophets are. They might have a 10,000-person church. They might have a 30,000-person church, but they're clouds without water. In other words, they look amazing, but they don't uh, produce anything of spiritual value, and the people are dry. What else are they? They're carried about by the winds, the, just the, 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 the trends of the day. Let's do what other people are doing so we can keep relevant for young people or whatever. They're late autumn trees without fruit. They're dead. They're twice dead. They're pulled up by the roots. There's no life in them. It looks like there should be life, but there isn't really. They're raging waves of the sea. That can mean in the Old Testament evil or worldly. There's different references in Isaiah and places foaming up at their own shame. Look at this, folks. There's a lot of activity at the church that they pastor. They're foaming up things, but it's just shameful because there's nothing to it. It's just fun, 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 fun. Never any spiritual growth or whatever. Give, 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 give. They're wandering stars. What does that mean? It means a comet. It means they're going to blaze across the sky. They're going to be pop. I've seen it here in this community, folks. Right here, close. Ten years ago, church pops up, just blows up. Kids are going there. People are going there. Young people are going there. It's all the rage, and one day the pastor just doesn't show up. They were a shooting, wandering star built on nothing but the things that are here. What's reserved for them? The blackness of darkness forever. People who are like this, 
the blackness of darkness forever. Now, here's an interesting verse. Verse 19, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, there was a son of Cain named Enoch. That's not this one. That's why he says it's the seventh from Adam. An Enoch, you can read about him in uh, Genesis 5 and also Hebrews. He's part of the uh, hall of uh, faith. Enoch, this seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also saying, listen, where did he prophesy about these folks? Well, he prophesied from the book of Enoch. What? What are you talking about? This quote comes from the book of Enoch. Well, remember now, Paul himself quoted from pagan poets. So this doesn't give the book of Enoch scriptural status. But what he refers to here is part of the scripture, and it comes from the book of Enoch. Make sense? Make sense? So the whole book of Enoch, it isn't. Uh, uh, canonized, but this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, this reference. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them, of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Now, we've seen that in uh, Revelation. You understand this, folks? That you're going to come again Listen, here's the prophetic calendar. We're in the church age. The Lord is coming for his church. He's going to raptus, capture us, catch us up in the air. We may die first. If we don't die first, we'll be raptured. If we die, we'll be present with the Lord. Either way, we'll be in heaven with the Lord. There's going to be a seven-year period of tribulation, the Bible tells us. And at the end of seven years, the Lord is going to come. Listen, listen. The Lord's going to come back to the earth to rule and reign and set everything right, and you're coming with him as his saints. And that's what this is referring to. Isn't that amazing? To execute judgment on all, convict all who are ungodly. When you watch the news and you say, Lord, why don't you get these people? They've done this to this one or this little one. Or Oh, my goodness. He is. He'll set everything right. He's going to execute judgment, and you're going to help in some way. How that will be, I don't know. But that's it. Now, here's a very convicting thing in verse 16. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts. This is what people who are false do. They grumble and complain, and they walk according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words. They're orators. They can make any type of speech. They can get you riled up and emotional. They flatter people to gain advantage. And here it comes. Here comes the turn. Ready? But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How you, they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own godly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. They're going to be people, folks, right in our churches who are false and who do these sorts of things. They're going to be grumblers and complainers on top of everything else we've said, and they're going to talk big words and flatter people to gain advantage. But remember, they're also, when they mock and they say, the Lord, what do you mean the Lord's coming back? What are you talking about? That happened a long time ago. You're, that's, not, that's all allegory. Why are you studying that stuff? That ain't happening. 
The mere fact that they say it is just another reason to believe he's coming. It's said that they would mock his coming. They're sensual persons. They want to live. Why would they want to have their apple cart upset? They want to live according to their sensual things. But you, beloved, verse 20, this is fascinating to me. All of this, you're probably scratching your head. You're going, does this, you know, what? Come on. Okay, yeah, I get it. We've been talking about it for months. See, in Peter, he predicted this. In Jude, it's come to fruition, and now he's writing about it. Here's how he says, attack it. How do you attack false doctrine? How do you attack false prophets, false teaching? Well, you know what I would say is go, uh, you know, shoo them out of the church, and, and maybe there is a place for that. In some places, uh, the Bible talks somewhat about some of those things. But here's what he says, the greatest angle of attack or strategy is against false doctrine and false teachers. Ready for it? But to build yourself up on your most holy faith, the greatest sense is that we corporately here could be great students of the Bible. You know what makes my heart sing? Is to see people down here at 8.30 in the morning. Can you believe people would come, adults, at 8.30 in the morning and study the first five books of the Bible, including uh, uh, writing papers and taking tests, and they're doing it, and they're, they're coming. And then at 9.15 in the morning, people are coming for foundations of the faith, 14-week study, building blocks of the faith. In other words, make your services a Bible institute. I stole that from Warren Wearsby. Make, make your church a Bible institute. <laughs> Not so you can learn the facts, but that you would go out and obey what the Word says. Because the character of God has just gotten into your heart so much. You, you build up yourselves in your most holy faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. Not just some statements, some great little sermonettes, ten minutes. No, study the word and know it. Know the Old Testament. Know the prophets. Know, know uh, the New Testament. So that you would be built up block by block by block. And then do what? Pray in the Holy Spirit. Pray in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Let the Holy Spirit guide you, you know, when you go out into the woods and pray, you're not alone. When you go into your prayer closet and shut the door, as Jesus tells us to do, when you get alone with the Lord, you're not alone. The Holy Spirit is there. And the Bible tells us that he's to guide our prayers. In fact, it says in Romans 8, if you don't even know what to pray, he'll groan for you in utterances that you don't even know about. And I believe this also speaks of speaking in tongues. Now, before you freak out, Go listen to my sermons on Romans, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Go listen to it. Because in 12 and 14, you know what Paul is concerned about? He doesn't, he puts these massive gates around any public speaking of tongues. He's really careful about speaking in tongues in public because he doesn't want to freak out unbelievers and think people are weird and chase them off from the gospel. But he does talk about, in my opinion, a prayer language in which people come into fellowship with God in a way that they never even knew before. And now you're, you know, probably going, yeah, I believe that. No, I, believe, I can't believe he's saying that. And here's what I think the Bible teaches. Is not, not everybody gets the gifts of tongues. <laughs> There's no evidence that you're saved because you have the gift of tongues or not. Nobody here is going to browbeat you because you don't have the gift of tongues. But if God chooses to give it to you, praise the Lord. But that's not the point. The point here is that you're to build yourself up in your most holy faith. Most holy faith. Build yourself up in the most holy faith. Do that. 
And then pray in the Holy Spirit. Do you know if you went into Acts 6, the word and in in prayer are this. Just pray in the Holy Spirit. If you don't know what to pray, just have the Holy Spirit guide your prayers. Ask him to do it. Do that. And then this one. Keep yourselves in the love of God. <laughs> you understand that the Bible doesn't teach you earn the love of God, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. There's no earning there, folks. He chose to do it. But I'm convinced that, as one pastor has said, the grace and love and mercy of God is being poured out, just being poured out constantly. But we oftentimes wander away from, as he would say, the spout where the blessings come out. <laughs> we wander away. We get involved in other things. We do these sorts of things. We, we, we don't uh, uh, you know, spend time in the Word. We don't spend time praying. We don't keep ourselves in the lo uh, love of God by looking also for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. I believe that's a reference, just like in Titus, to the blessed hope of Jesus Christ coming back. Look at this, folks. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13, 13? Faith, hope, love. Uh, but the greatest of these is love. Now, where do you get all of that? Well, faith, building yourself up in the Word. What's the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Love. Where's, what's our hope? Well, folks, your hope isn't whether or not you get the promotion or not. Real hope is that Jesus Christ is coming back, and you're going to rule and reign for eternity with him. You're going to participate in his kingdom in some way. That's real hope. And here, faith, hope, and love are right here in the Bible. In fact, he says, I'm going to give you some practical steps to attack false prophecy. Build yourself up in the word, pray in the spirit, and look for my coming return. It's not a big formula. What if we did this? What if we did this? This is not to guilt trip you. This is to get you to respond in love to the Lord. What if we all did this? Before we looked at our phones in the morning, before we watched ESPN, before we got in the car and drove to work, before we did everything, what if we just read through the New Testament once a month in the mornings before breakfast? You know that the Chinese church has a saying? You know what? You know what the saying is? No Bible no breakfast. What if we did that? And we didn't do it just to check off some calendar. <laughs> Sorry, I'm tweaking some people in here. I can't help myself. But not to just check off some calendar, but to meet the Lord in the morning in his word and see prayer and uh, the word are intricately tied together. And then we finished all of that off that, Lord, I'm going to live my day this morning in anticipation that you're coming back. Oh, what a world it would be. Well, we finish this way. And he says there's two reactions to some who caught up in this false prophet stuff. Hey, for some, have compassion. Make a distinction. For the doubting ones, for the weak ones, be real careful. Be, have compassion when they're into some false stuff. Start to just, you know, gently bring them out of that and talk to them about real doctrine. But for some who have uh, need it, guess what you have to do? You have to pull them out of the fire, kind of like, like, you know, like a horse collar tackle or something. Pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by flesh. Just tell them. Some people just need ripped out of the fire. Some people need just talk to. You got to know the difference. How do you know the difference? By the Spirit of God. There's discernment in talking to people. 
And then this glorious doxology to finish. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Wow, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who can keep you from stumbling if you're willing, if you submit to him. And he will keep you from stumbling. He is going to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. He's going to take the bride of Christ, which is you, and present uh, the bride to the Father with exceeding joy. I've fulfilled what you've asked me to do, the Lord says. And you're the precious prize to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. In other words, will you recognize this as you're combating false prophecy or false doctrine, that God is greater than any danger or threat? You don't think God's up in heaven right now wringing his hands over the false prophets, do you? He knows. He'll set it right. So when we do this, very simple, isn't this beautiful? You go through this complex letter, and then God gives you just what to do. Know my word. Pray in the spirit. Look for my return. Let's pray. Well, Lord... Thank you so much, Lord, for your word, your eternal word, great word, your majestic word, Lord, that can do things in our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would right now do a mighty work through this letter. And Lord, that you would uh, fill our hearts with a sense of knowing your word and going forward here this week, Lord, filled with the Spirit for the purpose of telling people the gospel of Jesus Christ and glorifying you, Lord. Thank you that we can come to you boldly to your throne room with these prayers and petitions and thanksgivings by the blood of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. And everybody says, amen. Well, hey, God bless you guys and have a great week.